Thank you. So uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Dr. Kaufman. I'm here with Dr. Schneider. And our practice is called the Institute for Advanced Reconstruction. We're uh, based in uh, central New Jersey, a little south of here. Uh, but we also have offices in the vicinity, uh, actually most recently in Springfield, which is just down the street. Um, we also have a, a peripheral nerve institute, which is out of Jersey Shore Medical Center, which is a referral center, a referral center for various types of, of uh, nerve disorders and also for uh, certain innovative treatments for spinal cord injury. Uh, we have a great deal of experience with diaphragm paralysis. That includes ventilator dependency, and we've been treating patients since 2007. Uh, we've treated more than 200 uh, patients to date and evaluated well over 400. We have patients uh, inquiring about our services from all over the country. Um, for those of you that are familiar with the, the Synapse uh, pacemaker device, we're also an official Synapse Center since uh, 2014. We deal with various head-to-toe peripheral nerve disorders. Um, that includes everything from occipital neuralgia, facial paralysis, brachial plexus, diaphragm paralysis, upper and lower extremities, et cetera, et cetera. And as well, we apply these peripheral nerve treatments for various central nervous system disorders. So in the case of spinal cord injury, uh, we're, uh, we're very uh, interested and involved in, in trying to uh, reverse ventilator dependency and that's the topic of discussion. Dr. Schneider will talk about not only standard treatments for pressure sores, such as flap surgery, et cetera, but also doing some nerve grafting to try to restore protective sensation to prevent pressure sores. And, uh, and we're also uh, doing work with uh, the upper extremity in certain types of tetraplegia to restore function using a peripheral nerve surgery algorithm or an, a similar algorithm that would be used for brachial plexus, basically treating it like a bilateral brachial plexus. And uh, our par other partner, Dr. Elkwood, will probably be uh, lecturing at another time about that. We're also dealing with patients uh, who have stroke and, and uh, treating uh, such things as swallowing disorders, facial paralysis, and hemiparesis. Again, trying to restore function to the upper extremity using peripheral nerve surgery. And then, um, there are other applications for pacemakers and, and diaphragm paralysis treatment in other central nervous system disorders such as ALS and central sleep apnea. The diaphragm is an important muscle which many of you are familiar with. Uh, it's the primary respiratory muscle. It separates the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity and it contracts. It does all the work with every breath. The uh, diaphragm increases the thoracic dimension in a vertical plane along with, with the intercostals and other accessory muscles. So when we breathe, the diaphragm moves down, the rib cage moves up and out, and the lungs have more space to take in air. And the opposite occurs with expiration where everything comes back in line. The diaphragm is passive during that phase of breathing. There's an important nerve 
it, that it supplies the diaphragm because it's the only nerve that supplies the diaphragm. It's called the phrenic nerve. It comes out of the spinal cord at C3, 4, and 5. And it's primarily a motor nerve and, and has some small sensory components to it. But it's very important when we talk about spinal cord injury, especially cervical spinal cord injury, because when the damage involves either the levels C3 to 5 or above, we're dealing with a, a dysfunctional or non-functional diaphragm, which contributes either completely or at least in part to the, to the ventilator dependency. And what do we know about positive pressure ventilation? Well, we know that it really takes a toll on the diaphragm and it happens very quickly. So in the New England Journal, they demonstrated that after 18 hours of positive pressure ventilation, this is in post-mortem specimens, they already showed a 57% decrease in type 1 slow twitch, that the active muscles atrophy faster, and that there's all sorts of breakdown that occurs. So even in a period of less than 24 hours of positive pressure ventilation, the diaphragm changes. So you can imagine what happens over weeks to months. There are various causes of diaphragm paralysis, and today we'll focus on the, the central causes, spinal cord injury, but there are other things that can happen. You can have direct injury to the phrenic nerve from surgery, anesthetic blocks, chiropractic manipulation, basically anything that causes trauma to the neck and or chest, basically wherever the nerve runs. There are also neuromuscular disorders such as ALS, um, and viral causes. Uh, from the standpoint of central nervous system disorders, spinal cord injury being the most prevalent, and then other things like central sleep apnea, also called central hypoventilation syndrome, tumors, and other neurodegenerative conditions. So when we breathe, there's a signal that's sent from our brainstem down the, uh, down the pathways in our spine and then out to the phrenic nerve, which reaches the muscle. We also have sort of a conscious override in our motor cortex, which is why you can either breathe, sit here and breathe sub without thinking about it, or if someone asks you to take a deep breath, you can override that subconscious effort. What are the options for treating th these problems? Well, if you, if you have one diaphragm that doesn't work, you're not on a ventilator, but you may be short of breath with exertion. Um, there, there are some really good uh, rehab protocols for trying to restore function or maximize function to diaphragms that aren't working well, either through pulmonary rehab or diaphragm retraining therapy. There's also non-invasive positive pressure ventilation through CPAP and BiPAP. And then there's mechanical ventilation, which is usually when there's bilateral dysfunction, such as spinal cord injury. Surgical options include a procedure called plication, which is where the muscle is just tacked down to allow the lung to expand, but there's no diaphragm movement, there's no function. There's a diaphragm pacemaker. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are familiar with or have heard about a diaphragm pacemaker by a show of hands? Okay. Well, a diaphragm pacemaker is basically an electrical stimulator for the diaphragm. So if for some reason the brain and their spinal cord can't send the signal, the pacemaker does that instead. And so for patients on ventilators as a result of spinal cord injury, 
it could be a good option to get them off the vent, either partially or completely. Phrenic nerve surgery is basically going in and trying to fix a, phrenic, a damaged phrenic nerve. And that's also, that may also have application for really bad spinal cord injuries, where not only is there a central nervous system problem, but there's also direct damage or indirect damage to the phrenic nerve. And then something that we're really excited about, because we just completed our first case, which is diaphragm muscle replacement surgery. Basically, when the whole system is dysfunctional, to try to um, still overcome the, the muscle loss. And I just want to show you that basically there's three parts to the system. The brain and the spinal cord are the generator. The wire, the phrenic nerve is the wiring, and the, the active part of this is the diaphragm muscle. So in really bad spinal cord injuries, all three parts of the system are not working, meaning that the spinal cord has, has damage to it. In some cases, the phrenic nerve loses its integrity as well. And therefore, when that happens, the diaphragm atrophies rapidly and progressively. And so the most severe cases uh, have until now been untreatable. And the patients would be completely ventilator dependent. You've probably seen spinal cord injured patients where they're on vents and no one thinks anything can be done. Well, we're trying to overcome that and have an algorithmic approach where we have not just a pacemaker, but two or three options to try to help that individual. So diaphragm pacemakers are indicated for cervical tetraplegia with you know, when they're ventilator dependent, ALS, stroke, any central nervous system disorder that leads to ventilator dependency. And then there are some off-label uses for unilateral problems, even for patients with hiccups, where we're, it's, we're, be, we're using it to try to break that abnormal activity and other types of abnormal diaphragm um, function. Pacemakers have been around since the 70s. It's not new. Uh, they've, they've been used, they've been implanted in hundreds of patients, if not thousands, and can be very effective. There are two devices that are available, um, and I think they, they both can be very effective, and we are actively implanting both devices at, at our nerve institute. Uh, one is implanted through a, a cervical approach, meaning a neck incision, where an electrode is threaded around the phrenic nerve. And uh, this receiver is implanted. It looks a little bit like a heart pacemaker. It's implanted in the chest, under the, under the skin in the chest. And there's an antenna that transmits the signal. And then there's another device called Synapse, which is a, placed through a laparoscopic approach. These electrodes get placed directly into the muscle. So this is, this is looking from below, so this is through, through the belly, looking up at the diaphragm. This is the diaphragm from underneath, and these electrodes are being threaded at the areas where there's maximal contraction that can be elicited. And so that's, the wires emerge from the skin, and that's what it looks like when it's, uh, when it's all done. Both of these devices have uh, uh, been associated with, with significant improvements for the patient. From the standpoint of quality of life, it's been demonstrated that it makes it easier for them to eat and speak if they're off the vent. Morbidity and mortality, there's definitely an, an advantage when it comes to respiratory infection. These are negative pressure devices as opposed to the positive pressure. 
of a mechanical ventilator or even you know, BiPAP. So you know, that negative pressure in the system certainly is, is advantageous when it comes to infections. Um, and then there's been a, a, a trend towards, towards improvement in, in mortality. And then from the healthcare cost, we all know how expensive it is to keep patients on vents. And these devices are not cheap, but it's a one-time expense. And then if the patient can wean, it saves uh, a lot of healthcare costs. So when, do, when to refer, for those of you that deal with the spinal cord patients and you're trying to wean them, and certainly you all have great methods for weaning many of your patients without intervention, but when should it be, they be considered? And the answer is as early as possible when non-invasive methods have failed or stalled, and preferably less than a year. Okay, a year is a, a, sort of a, 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 a landmark time, time point after which uh, there really is a lot of deterioration in the diaphragm muscle, and it makes what we have to do after that much more difficult. And especially consider them for a pacemaker uh, based on their level. So if we know it's a very high cervical tetraplegic where uh, there's likely to be more damage to that respiratory pathway. And then if Dr. Cole's study demonstrates also that there, are, there is damage to one or both phrenic nerves, because now you're dealing with not only a generator problem, but a bad wiring problem. And if the wiring problem is really bad, you know, a pacemaker alone may not even do it. Um, Dr. Anders, who's uh, really the pioneer of the Synapse device, and he, in his recent publication, says, has shown de advantage in, in even considering early pacemaker implantation in less severe cases to bridge to independent respiration. So maybe in some patients where there's a, there's a fair chance that eventually they'll wean, but it may take weeks or months to wean, that the pacemaker can be considered to help that transition. It may speed up the transition, may get them out of the, the hospital sooner, uh, and it could be reversed. The pacemaker could be reversed if they eventually did wean. So, you know, I, I, I'm not a spokesperson for either device. I think both devices have their pluses and minuses, and we've probably done about equal numbers at this point between the two. I mean, there's a, there are, you know, something. I, I think both of, unfortunately, both devices use outdated technology, and it's just a sad state of affairs with things in spinal cord uh, treatment and in research that, you know, a cardiac pacemaker um, technology is so much more advanced because hundreds of thousands of people a year are being implanted. I think about 300 patients a year are being implanted for spinal cord injury, and so nobody puts enough money into the research and development, and therefore the technology is lacking. But yet, both devices have uh, demonstrable efficacy. I guess that's the key at this point. So, um, as I mentioned, you know, there's three parts to the system, the generator, the wiring, and the muscle. Why has it been estimated that 20% of attempted pacemaker implantation cases are aborted or are unsuccessful, okay? And, and the answer is because the wiring is bad. Because the pacemaker only overcomes a bad generator. It does nothing for the wiring and it does nothing for a, a, a significant deterioration in the muscle. The wiring has to be intact and the muscle has to have some integrity left in it 
for the pacemaker to work. And so what we're now faced with are these salvage cases, and we're sort of the referral center for synapse for the failed cases, and it's due to deterioration in the phrenic nerves and progressive diaphragm atrophy. So we published a paper in June uh, to, to, to try to provide a, a treatment option for these salvage cases, and it was based upon, uh, the article is in the folder, and it's based upon some work that was done uh, in New Jersey back in 2000 uh, using nerve rerouting procedures or nerve transfers, they're called, to try to first restore the wiring and then use the pacemaker to still do the job. It's all done in one operation, but basically it's replacing two of the three parts of the system. And so we did that in 14, now 15 patients, but at the time in the publication it's 14. And mo all of them were high cervical tetraplegics, and more than half of them had previously failed pacemaker implantation. This, the, the part that's most frustrating is that we got to them, or they got to us, really late, 34 months after their injury, which I, I you know, if, if you remember that prior slide, 18 hours after positive pressure ventilation, you start to get muscle deterioration. What do you think happens 34 months later? You know, the muscles has to be in pretty bad shape. So we had an inclusion criteria where they, you know, they were ventilated, completely ventilator dependent. The EMG studies really showed damage in both the generator and the wiring. And, uh, and otherwise, you know, they were free from respiratory infection and had good family support and nursing care. This just shows that we did two things. We this yellow arrow shows us, hooked, you can't really see it, but it's nerves hooked together, so a nerve transfer. And the green shows the pacemaker, so it's a two-part procedure. It's hooking, new, it's hooking functional nerves or nerves that still have integrity into the phrenic nerve and then putting a pacemaker. And so it relies on our ability or the patient's ability to regenerate in the peripheral nervous system. So obviously there's no regeneration capacity in the brain or spinal cord, or very little in the spinal cord, um, but there is in the peripheral nervous system. So when you hook nerves together, you can get axon sprouting, and that's, that's what we relied upon. And we measured, obviously, time to electrical recovery and time to clinical recovery. Well, we were able to show in 93% that we could actually re-innervate. We could get the wiring to regrow. Uh, and that occurred in an average of seven months. But only about 60% could really go on to pace well, and it really has to do with the muscle atrophy a, a, after an average of 34 months. Um, interestingly, when we used nerves that were above the level of spinal cord injury, in a couple patients, we were able to get them not only off the vent, but off the pacemaker, which showed that these nerve transfers, actually, th there, was, there was a... Uh, sort of a, a, a brain phenomenon where the brain learned that this became the new nerve to the diaphragm. So the average follow-up was 16 months. We really had no intraoperative complications. And this just shows you some of the changes that we saw. These were the, these are not precise EMGs like Dr. Cole does, but they're trans-telephonic, you know, electromyographic activity just to show that there's something happening um, downstream, and you can see, you know, these are the blips of the pacemaker, and then with some very little activity happening in between, and then after nine months, that there's, you know, more uh, 
volitional activity in the diaphragm. And here again, this is at nine months in this patient where there's really nothing. 24 months where we're starting to see something on the left, not much on the right. And then 36 months where now both sides show pretty good, we call it biphasic activity. So, you know, the, the study showed that we can re-innervate the diaphragm um, and in some cases get the patients off the vent, but uh, because of the long time frame uh, to treatment, you know, we're not going to do that great in, in all cases because of the muscle. We're not re the third part of the system is still damaged. Um, so, you know, on, 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 on one hand, if we can get to the patients earlier, we'll probably be more successful. We don't want to limit the ability to, to, to really pursue the non-invasive weaning strategies, but, but there's got to be some balance there. And we think 12 months, again, is sort of a key, a key time frame. And so the limitations are the rapid and progressive diaphragm muscle atrophy, which leads to limited clinical success, so we can have electrical recovery without clinical recovery. So, uh, so now the, the idea is to, how do we overcome that? How do we fix the third part of the system? Or how do we prevent deterioration in the system? And uh, we first, we, know, we, we have an idea that we can define what progressive atrophy in the diaphragm means. And I think it means, first off, electrodiagnostic silence. So when you have no voluntary motor units. But then secondly, trying to measure you know, an ultrasound measurement of the diaphragm. And this is just based upon some measurements we did in that, in that series, and we presented this at ISCOS Asia this year, that really less than two to three millimeters of maximal thickness in the diaphragm was associated with a much worse uh, clinical recovery. And so I don't know if that's the magic number, but certainly when you get down two millimeters, one millimeter, I don't, I don't think you can send enough signal into that muscle to make it work enough to get the patient off the vent for a substantial length of time. And, and I'm, not, I'm not aware of any uh, you know, nutritional or, or medical treatment that can, that can bring that muscle back. You know, I've looked in, you know, spoken to people about, well, what about anabolics, anabolics? Or what about other things that can hypertrophy the muscle? Would that work? And I, no one's been able to. I don't know that the answer is known. Um, so, so that in thinking about this, you know, how do, how do we prevent the damage in the muscle or how do we pre prevent the atrophy? Well, there's prevention with electrical stimulation, okay? And ideally it would be with non-invasive electrical stimulation. It's easy to stimulate a bicep or a, you know, a perineus. Uh, it's hard to stimulate a diaphragm because you could puncture a lung and the diaphragm's not readily accessible. Um, and then secondly is if we can't prevent it, or in cases where we've been unsuccessful at preventing it, how do we treat it? And, th and that's with the diaphragm muscle replacement surgery. So this article just came out in uh, Journal of Neurophysiology talking about the benefits of early short-term peripheral nerve stimulation. And it says uh, it ameliorates axonal dysfunction after spinal cord injury. It was uh, out of uh, Australia. And basically, they looked at arms and legs, upper extremities and lower extremities, and they did a six-week course of 30 minutes a day, and they compared side to side. And they showed uh, that not only does it prevent 
a loss of activity in the nerve and muscle, but that it actually reverses or it increases the excitability from the baseline. So obviously it's, it's not only, it seemed in this study that not only did it prevent deterioration, but it, it, it made it more normal. It almost made it more like before the spinal cord injury. Uh, and, and this may be, you know, something to look, I'm sure you're doing a lot of, of work with electrical stimulation here, um, but I, I think there's something there that, you know, in, for patients with ventilator dependency that, uh, that needs to be looked at for prevention. So if you're trying your non-invasive, your weaning protocols and working with the patient, and we could apply some peripheral nerve stimulation so that if, if eventually it fails and they need to have some surgical treatment, the whole system hasn't deteriorated by then. The diaphragm muscle replacement surgery um, involves transferring innervated, meaning where the nerve supply is still intact, and vascularized, meaning it still has its own blood supply, into the diaphragm, which we've determined is irreversibly damaged. And we're, we're looking at um, the rectus muscle and latissimus muscle, and at the same time implanting a pacemaker, because we still need to overcome the generator problem, the spinal cord. So uh, we're basically replacing all three parts of the system. The pacemaker is still the generator. We're using the nerve to the intact muscle as the wire. And the, the new muscle is the, becomes the, the diaphragm or the neo-diaphragm. So we did our first case in May on a 22-year-old female, C2 to 5, Asia A complete ventilator dependency, failed synapse pacemaker. So she had no stimulation in her uh, either diaphragm. So what we did, and I apologize for those of you that are uh, a little squeamish with pictures, but I do know that Dr. Schneider's picture is a lot more gory. <laughs> so um, this is a warm-up. So the, the patient had uh, access through, the, through a, uh, a thoracotomy approach we, we used an intercostal as, um, I'll explain in a minute, but to hook up some of the nerves to, from the rectus. The yellow loop is around the phrenic nerve, which we've tested at this point and confirmed that there's, when we stimulate at the phrenic, there's zero activity in the diaphragm, and so it's a non-stimulatable diaphragm. This is the other side. This is the rectus muscle, or the six-pack muscle, okay? Now, even though this muscle is not functioning on its own, because the, pa the, the nerves to that muscle come out of the thoracic spine. So when you stimulate that muscle, just like if you stimulate in a, in a cervical tetraplegic, you stimulate their leg, the leg jumps, right? Because th that lower motor neuron pathway is still okay. So the rectus muscle had full stimulation. You can see the, it looks like a normal, robust uh, muscle in a 22-year-old. You know, in fact, she kind of had a little bit of a six-pack. Um, so it's a great muscle, and when you stimulate it, it contracts. These are the nerves to the rectus. Unlike the diaphragm, which has one nerve, the rectus muscle has about five or six nerves. So we, had a, we have to isolate several of them. Up, this is up close. You can see the yellow loops around each of the nerves to the rectus muscle. Now we've tunneled the rectus muscle up into the chest. We want to make it into, the, we want to lay it into the diaphragm. We want to make it act like the diaphragm. And it just shows a close-up where we had to cut a couple of those little nerves to, to make, to, 
to, to get it up there, but about three of the nerves are still intact. And then we hooked in a pacemaker around one or two of those nerves, okay? So now it's hard to see, but now that, that rectus muscle is laying in the diaphragm. We created a nest in the diaphragm and hooked it into the tendons. Um, that's another view where you can just see the, uh, the rectus muscle laying in there. And for those nerves that we had a cut, we hooked them into the intercostal. So now there's no nerve disconnectivity. All the nerves are hooked up to something. And this is what, this is what we saw on the table. So you can see the contraction on the table. This is a diaphragm that had no movement. And that's the rectus doing all the work from the pacemaker. And we have, uh, not, I mean, this is the other side. Okay, turn it on, please. You can see we listen to music while we're operating. So, you know, I think this is, you know, obviously it's still very early. We're just starting to wean her. Um, but it's very promising when you take someone that had no diaphragm movement and you see pretty physiologic, at least visibly, movement during the surgery, which also eliminates the waiting game. A lot of the surgeries, the other surgery that we have to do, we have to wait for the nerves to regrow. Well, if we keep the nerves intact and we can have immediate visibility of diaphragm contraction, there may be uh, a lot of application there. So we'll keep you posted on, on how this patient does. But now I think we, there may be no patient that could potentially be uh, weaned if, if this is successful.